to another live Learn With Sue opportunity to eavesdrop with myself and my fabulous colleague, Tanya. Remember, this is the place where we walk and talk about all things positive psychology, emotions and neuroscience to help us be the best we can be. And this is Tanya and I with round three of the European Positive Psychology Conference because uh, we just can't seem to get it all in one session. So uh, Tanya, ready for round three? I am indeed soon. It's great to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> you too, my dear. We will. We'll see if we can get through everything this time. <laughs> so I thought it would be useful to start um, with John Helliwell because he was actually the third speaker on the first day, but we didn't get to him last time. And yet I think for many reasons, he was one of my favourite um, because of the statistics, although I do feel when we got to the end, I had to then ask him on a separate occasion what it meant sort of thing. But he shared lots of stats with us around various things, countries around the world. And for those of you listening who are not familiar with John Hallowell, he um, is part of the World Happiness Report. So basically collating lots of information, lots of data from around the world and giving us stats of what it might mean and what's of interest, etc. So Tanya, what about for you with John? He threw a lot of stuff at us, but was there anything that sort of stood out to you or what stood out to you? Um, yeah, and there, there was a lot of information. I've got like the slides. Um, I remember all the data he was kind of showing. So again, a lot of that, to be perfectly honest, it kind of goes over my head. And this is where I kind of rely on you to bring it to, you know, make it practical and bring it to life. Um, and I think, again, it, it, there's no surprise here. But again, when he started talking again, one of the things around COVID, and of course, a lot of people have said this, you know, not just the experts. But one of the things I kind of made a note on is that he said, actually, you know, this was a really good um example but the experience actually allowed for people to actually have a chance to help others and to reach out to help others um and again I kind of made a note to really um trust in others being there for you and showing kindness and again he mentioned and I can't remember the detail but I'm hoping you will remember the detail around he said there was a study around um losing your wallet um yes and how many you know and anyway I'll let you explain that so I thought that was really interesting um, actually and again as I say it's not anything new that you think actually you know a lot of people or society globally have I don't know we've, we've stopped in our tracks for a couple of years and realized well, what is really important to us um, around being humans really being social creatures yeah and I think that was actually one of the things that he talked about that stuck with me there were sort of two so I think this one's a good to start so his um, presentation was about world happiness and health during and after two years of COVID so he was sort of looking at the data from the last two years and the thing that I really loved about the lost wallets and and I don't know it's kind of a lovely way it makes me sort of smile that it's one of the ways that they try and measure trust in uh, countries is they ask people questions around if you lost your wallet, would you expect it to be returned by a police person um, or and or a stranger? And high trust countries obviously score really highly on this question of would a stranger return my wallet? Um, what I thought was really interesting is if you look and he split them down into uh, Nordic countries, Western European countries, excluding Nordic, and then all other countries. And, and obviously, uh, you come in where you are in the UK of Western European countries, excluding Nordic. And I am currently sitting in an all other countries bucket. What was most interesting about this is they linked the question around would your wallet be returned by strangers to the scores on what they call the Cantrell's Ladder, which is the well-being scales, as in how you know happy are you basically as a Cantrell's Ladder of one to ten or whatever it is, how happy are you and, and your overall well-being. And what's really interesting is the score for the Nordic countries is really high for wallets being returned. Um, and then Western European is a little bit lower. And I have to say for all other countries, it's like shockingly bad. <laughs> it's well, all other countries is about half the level of wow. Nordic countries. Mm. So the reason they looked at this is because there seems to be something around well-being and trust. 
so it's not just saying, oh, isn't that interesting? It's actually saying that there seems to be this interesting correlation. So is it that countries have, who have more trust have higher well-being, or is it the higher well-being that leads to more trust, etc.? So I thought that was quite fascinating, as you said, of like the lost wallet is sort of a fun question to ask, but the whole point of that is linking to trust in fellow fellow humans, I guess, in your country. Um, so yeah, I thought that was quite fascinating. I'm not quite sure what I do with that apart from trying to trust my fellow fellow people more. Um, but I thought it was an interesting one of how trust and well-being over the last two years, where I am, certainly, we don't have a high level of trust, which is interesting. Yeah, and it is interesting. Again, it kind of reminded me around like psychological safety. And again, something else I'd, I'd written down that he'd said, um, I'll, I'll say a quote, but, you know, this is what I made a note that he said, is that it's what's really important is to set the environment where everyone can flourish and no one drops off. And I say drops off in inverted commas. And again, I thought that was really quite interesting. Again, for me, the environment, um, this is what we talk about, again, creating an environment that's psychological safety. And again, it reminded me when I reflected on my notes, I was actually talking to a, um, a, a I was coaching a client last week or a couple of weeks ago. Um, and again, one of their, the organization she works with, one of their values is probably many of, probably all organizations values is around people and caring for the people in the trusting environment, but actually their employee engagement scores show the complete opposite of that. Um, so again, it's quite interesting, you know, we were talking about values, but again, it just reminded me again of John saying that it's really important to set that environment. Um, and we still, and I'm generalizing here, of course, and you know, organized seem to struggle with that. Um, but again, where this is where I think then it's quite interesting with the trust linking with the well-being. We say all the well-being comes first with the trust. So it's yeah, it's I don't know, it just re it resonated with me. I just thought it was quite interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's interesting that um correlation, we don't necessarily know causation yet, but is it that a country where there's higher trust has high levels of well-being, or is does the higher levels of well-being come first and then for more people are trusting? And that would be interesting to sort of pull that out. The other thing that I really enjoyed on his statistics is um, they looked at um, what they, they, they chunked countries on for this one, uh, 15 countries for 15 months of eliminators or mitigators. And the eliminators are countries such as Australia, New Zealand, many parts of Asia, which during COVID were the ones that tried to eliminate the impact, if you like, as far as death and illness of COVID. Um, and obviously that hasn't been successful long term, you know, it still goes around um, versus mitigators, which was mainly sort of Western Europe, some Nordic countries, etc., where um, it was just get on with it, so to speak. Um, what I really found fascinating here, and I don't know if you remember at the end of the, his, his uh, speech when he started singing, which kind of like put me off and he, his speech just cut short, not his singing, but I was like, no, no, I was listening to what you were saying. I, I need to wrap this up. I felt that I wasn't sure what he was saying here, which is why, if you remember at the speaker event, I went up and asked him. But what I think is really interesting here, and for everybody listening, have a think about what this means. So we've got one group of countries, and I can't remember who the 15 countries are. I didn't take a shot of that. Um, but out of the 15 countries, some were mitigators, so they're just getting on with it during COVID, and some were eliminators, so Australia, New Zealand, et cetera, that were trying to stop the impact of COVID. What was really interesting is they did various scales. So they did one to do with well-being. And what's really interesting is there's very little difference between the two country groups. So 1.9 and 1.92. So very little difference. Um, the Cantor's ladder, so the overall well-being side of things, um, was very little difference. It was roughly 0.7 difference between the two um, of the mitigators versus the eliminators. The approval for government handling of the pandemic, this was an interesting one. There was 0.4 of a difference and the eliminators were slightly higher. So for instance, me in Australia, apparently I'm slightly less, um, I'm slightly happier than you are with um, approval for government handling, but very little difference. Um, there was a little bit of difference in what they called the stringency index. So obviously, um, uh, the difference there being certain countries were more stringent on what happened. But interesting, the approval was 
better in eliminators very slightly, even though the stringency may have been ha um, higher, uh, higher, if you like, and yet that didn't play out. So across those four um, scores, they were pretty statistically similar, as in um, what they call the PHQ-4, the Cantrell's Ladder, the Approval for Government Handling and the Stringency Index, not much difference between the mitigators and the eliminators. But the one that was hugely different, and again, I needed to check this, is the annual deaths per 100,000 was massively different. So the mitigators had on average 64.33 um, compared to the eliminators of 6.18 uh, per 100,000 people. So when John shared this, I immediately thought, okay, what's that saying? And he didn't give us the so what. So my question to him is basically, what's this telling us? It's basically saying that whether we believe it or not at the time going through it, the eliminators did far, far better because overall, from a economic perspective, we didn't do any worse. From a well-being perspective, we didn't do any worse. From a stringency and approval of government, it's pretty much the same. And yet our death toll was so much lower. So I don't know what your thoughts were about that, but I thought that was just really interesting. It's the first study I've seen about how countries handled the pandemic and how people feel about their, how their countries handled the pandemic and linking to well-being. that basically a lot fewer people dead and yet the other, the other indicators are pretty similar. What are your thoughts? It's interesting, isn't it? I think I need to reflect a little bit more on that. I can, it's, and I wonder, one of the thoughts I'm kind of having is, obviously this was soon after the pandemic, as it were. I wonder in the, in the total amount of deaths, how much that will have increased now. And I'm saying this purely because number, again, COVID numbers are going up, or again, I think and I'm talking about the UK and Europe, probably more so the U UK, um, where then those numbers kind of started reducing. I'm not saying yours started increasing, but I no, just, a little bit. because of the vaccination rollout and what have you, I don't know, there's so many different um, causes, but I think yeah. the, the massive difference, I mean, that, that is a huge difference. Um, yeah. And to your point, this is the first sort of 15 months or so. It'll be interesting to see, you know, sort of three years down or, you know, sort of down when we've seen as certainly here in Australia, we've kind of all opened up again and all getting on with it. So everyone's getting COVID. Um, uh, but also, you know, what's changing in some of the other countries. But it was really interesting and I think surprising from what I understood from John that even though the the stringency in the eliminator countries was much higher it wasn't uh, it didn't change people's opinion yeah. of how stringent the government had been which is interesting the fact that we're all pretty similar in yeah approval for government was pretty low across the board um but it was pretty even but yeah death toll changed so that was and for me the the thing that i really liked about john's presentation is it was just statistics it wasn't saying this is what we should have done this is what we shouldn't have done it was just interesting to hear the stats um the other one that i thought might be useful to to sort of touch on is um he talked about benevolence and um benevolent acts in 2020 and 2021 compared with 2017 to 2019. Um, and that was really interesting of whether it had gone up or down. And you made the point earlier about um, people had got kinder. And that came through in the statistics that 2021, we seemed to be much kinder. Now, I don't know if anybody listening necessarily agrees with that, but I think that was um, from a baseline perspective, there was a little change in 2020, particularly in helping a stranger. So that one was the one that had gone up the most, a little bit in pro-social, uh, et cetera. But what was really interesting is in 2021, that shot up even further as far as donations, volunteering, helping strangers, pro-social, all increased significantly over and above 2017 to 19 levels and over and above 2020 levels. So what are your thoughts? Do you think we've really become nicer and more benevolent and are volunteering more, donating more, helping people more? What's your thoughts? Um, I think, again, it was, it was a time to stop and reflect about what's important. And again, I think um, for me personally, and again, friends that I know or colleagues, et cetera, it was um, because we were all we were all impacted when I say all I mean obviously globally 
Um, yeah. It was like there was this, we had to pull together somehow, even forget about all the different governments doing different things and, you know, different timelines. Mm. Um, but it was a case of we are all in this together. This isn't no. like the Northern Hemisphere helping the Southern Hemisphere or vice versa and what have you. It's like we're all in this together. And something, again, he he mentioned around um, with the, the kindness, the loneliness. And again, he said, and I wrote this down because, again, it just kind of struck a chord for me. He said, loneliness is not a disease. It's a condition and it needs a vaccine. The vaccine is a friend. And again, I thought that was just, again, quite interesting, again, around um well, the vaccination around, you know, being friends, being kindness and what have you were more so than what we used to be. And I guess that is from a view of we really need to help each other because we're all in this together. So I, I wonder yeah. what's starting to flip again, mind you. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think it's here to say sadly, just with everything else that's kind of going on in the world. But it was it was an interesting time and reflections on around that. Yeah. And maybe to your point, and it links to um, Felicia's comment that we spoke about last time around how do we put more of the positives out there? Because uh, as you know, kindness comes, you know, quite low on my character strengths. And I never think I'm that kind. I don't think, well, in comparison, because you know my other half and he's about as kind as you can get. I mean, he thinks of all sorts of wonderful things and he's just so amazing. Um, that compared to him, I always think, God, I know I would never think about that. Um, so do I think I've necessarily been any kinder during the pandemic? Probably not. I mean, have I given my time for free and to help people? Have I given support and those sorts of things? Yes but I probably haven't done as much as many other people. What I think you said that's really important though, and again, I don't know what our listeners are thinking of this, is um, sometimes when there's an issue in the world, it's like you said, one country going through it, and we all feel good because we donate to that particular country that's had the tragedy. This is an interesting one, and I think I, I like the fact that they broke down benevolence in this study to donation, volunteering, helping a stranger or pro-social, was the fact that Every single person in the world, 10 years down the track, when we go, oh, you remember COVID? Oh, yeah, what were you doing? We all know what we're talking about. So I wonder if the little acts, the just being nice, the, the smiling under our masks, the checking in if people are okay, I wonder if it's those little wonderful things where we're more understanding, to your point, because we're all in it together, whether we're just nicer and and checking in and making sure that people are okay and I'm sure there's many people listening that have done way more kind things than I have during the pandemic um but I do wonder if to your point is that awareness the extra heightened awareness even in organizations now that you know well-being is not about a fruit bowl and a yoga on a Friday it's actually leaders caring genuinely and demonstrating that caring to their team members so yeah I don't know it's an interesting one yeah and I think to your point it is it's the awareness because actually this has impacted me this isn't somebody else another country this has impacted me and it isn't just me it's all of us and again to your point I I think I'm similar to you in the sense I don't think I particularly increased my levels of kindness but again it, so it makes me think Again, I would have thought this at the time, and I think this fairly often, actually, you know, nowadays, is, and in fact, even a conversation I had with, with a couple of friends yesterday that I was with, it's like, is this not just being human? This is just, why Why is this so extraordinary? I mean, it's fabulous. And again, as you said, there have been many people that have done so, you know, massive, beautiful, you know, lots of volunteering, et cetera. But it's like we are so kind of amazed at this whereas I kind of go well isn't why aren't we doing this kind of all the time like why this is just this is it's being human. human why courtesy, courtesy. Yeah. it is caring it's showing compassion it's so I don't know it's it is interesting as you say it's yeah and now you said that I thought it might be useful to look at what the statistics were before so what's really interesting is and again they've broken this down per country um, or per region. So, for instance, North America and Australia, New Zealand, our level of donating has dropped from a high since about 2015, bottomed out at about 
2019-2020 and has now gone up again. Volunteering peaked at somewhere around 2014, dropped considerably and is now lifting. And helping a stranger peaked somewhere around 2013, dropped considerably in 2018 and has now gone up a bit. And yet in other regions, so Western Europe, um, slow decline and then a little peak on almost, actually not quite all three. So again, uh, Western Europe sort of peaked on helping a stranger somewhere around 2013, dropped quite a bit and has now lifted again. What's really interesting um, is certain regions have consistently gone up and continued to go up and didn't have the drop beforehand. So maybe to your point is, actually have we come from a low base and we weren't considering other people before and now we've got a little bit of an uptick and how do we sustain that how do we continue to be human and be courteous and be kind and be understanding um because again it links very much to some of the other scales such as overall well-being overall trust etc so yeah an interesting one i don't think i have any answers to that but i love the fact that john is sort of sharing data on these sorts of things who else? Who else have we not spoken about that you found interesting? Well, we haven't spoken about you. <laughs> no, well, we'll get to me another time. <laughs> um, who else did we have? So I think, um, let me just look through my list. We had John. Um, Richard Ryder. I remember we, we bumped into Richard yeah. Ryder um, at some point as well. I think after... I can't remember what day it was, but it was lovely bumping into him and I'd not met him before um, and just have a Yeah, bit. so Richard Ryan, uh, for those of you listening in, if you're not familiar with Richard, Richard Ryan is very well known for his self-determination theory over the last sort of 40 years uh, with Edward Ditchie, which is fabulous. And so Richard, he did a workshop on the pre-conference workshops, obviously you and I didn't go to because um, we were busy enjoying ourselves around Iceland. Uh, but we bumped into him then, I think, on the second day um, and we were having a chat and he was just lovely, wasn't he? Wasn't he just so nice, just chit-chatting away? He didn't seem in a hurry to go anywhere or it was just lovely. Very smiley. Very, very smiley. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was and I think one of the things that struck me about his um conversation so lots of research has been done over the last two years around self-determination theory and COVID um and as we've talked about on few, previous sort of sessions um if you think about it it makes complete sense because for many people your autonomy is taken away because your government your company has basically told you go work from home wear your mask don't do this do do that so that's removing your autonomy. And some people were able to handle that by making it their choice, as in, if I choose to exercise, I will abide by the rules. If I choose to go to the shop, yes, I will wear my mask. So almost making it of, yes, I've been given these boundaries, but I'm choosing to live with those boundaries. Some people obviously got very upset and started fighting against it and protesting and those sorts of things. No, we don't want to be told what to do. So autonomy was a big one. Competence was an interesting one because during COVID, I don't know how you felt about any of these, maybe you can share your thoughts, is some people had never worked from home before. So competence takes a hit because I've never had to put boundaries in place around my time. I haven't had to set up an office at home. Um, I haven't had to use technology. We had teachers and uh, various people in corporations who've never, who'd never used Teams or Zoom or whatever it happens to be. Um, so competence took a hit initially, although maybe we've improved um, and relatedness took a hit. So your point about loneliness, people working from home, feeling disconnected, not included, etc. So obviously his work around COVID has been or through COVID has been really interesting. So how have those three impacted you during COVID? Because you seem to have sailed through. <laughs> Well, I, and again, I think it's interesting because when I reflect, I would just, I would say now, yeah, you know, it was it was okay for me. But actually, when I've kind of spoken to friends and what have you, when I really kind of go back to, you know, when I was living in um, more central London, I'll say in Covent Garden, where again, um, I was working from home anyway. But actually, when I think back to, and again, I was saying to this to friends over the weekend who were overseas, uh, who came over from overseas, um, because we were talking about it again. Covent Garden, for those of you who don't know, you know, it's central London, but it's 24-7. It's, it's like New York, it's just open 
Um, so the whole thing around the loneliness aspect is also because there was literally no one around. I mean, I know we can all say that, but it was it was so surreal. It was bizarre. It was the first time in my life that I'd actually felt scared in London as well. Um, and this is around 6 p.m. So I do again, there was little slight you know, moments like that where I think, God, this is this is so abnormal. Um, so kind of those kind of things would adjust. In terms of the competence, yeah, technology, you say, I mean, that was a big one. I was already working from home, but as you say, you know, even with our business, like everything, you know, we were 98% in person, <laughs> I'd say delivery, um, if not more. So again, that all had to change. But again, it does make me, I think the positives from that is, we as human beings, we adapt. We adapt really quite quickly. And yeah, you have to. And it just goes to show um, how well actually we have done. The fact, you know, and again, previous to COVID, it might have been world organizations saying you can't, you know, you're not able to work from home for whatever reason. Um, but it just goes to show, well, that put a nail in that, that coffin. Because um, yeah. we, we could. And again, it's, I think for me personally, how it, what I'm grateful for is, and again, I was saying this to friends yesterday, is having um, a, call, a toolkit of strategies, which I agree. I wouldn't have necessarily had actually a few years, or certainly not before joining, you know, working with the language group, which I'm much more aware of. Um, I probably, I would have, and I don't like using the word suffered, but I would have, the, the impact would have been much more negative on me if I hadn't have had strategies. So for me personally, I was able to put those strategies in place why you know why we'd all go out walking that's all you're allowed to do kind of here in the uk you know 30 minute limit or what have you but again i would be doing that intentionally mindfully i'd be using the sites for my for all my well-being for my brain um yeah. so, it, so it's not just walking for the sake of oh, i've got freedom but i'm doing this to really look after myself to keep my resilience up because we don't know when this is going to end so yeah, interesting. And again, the relatedness, I think probably everyone or so many people did this again around virtual quizzes on a Saturday night or Friday night with your family and friends and what have you. So we were able to, we, we did it, we did adapt. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Cause, yeah, because we've talked about that on a few other things about the, the positives that people did during COVID. And often they do align to those three basic psychological needs of self-determination theory. The other thing that um, Richard Ryan did talk about is potentially the, the maybe bringing in a fourth basic psychological need was benevolence, which is interesting because we just spoke about that with the data from John Halliwell. And I, if you remember, I actually queried it with him and I said, well, how does benevolence, how is it different to a component of relatedness? Because sometimes people, if they haven't read the research, they don't get the whole of relatedness. So relatedness is, do I feel I belong? Do I feel included? Do I feel connected to a group? Um, but it's also, am I making a difference? Am I contributing to a group? So his potential suggestion, and I don't know what you think to this or what our listeners think to this, is um, benevolence is more about the am I doing something that is kind and making a difference whereas at the moment it's encompassed in relatedness do they sort of pull that out and am I doing kind things for other people personally I don't know if you need to add one because then that's four I've got to remember as opposed to three and for me relatedness incorporates that but I don't know your thoughts so what did he say was the difference so he, he said benevolence is about um, being kind, doing kind things, supporting other people, etc. And I said, how is that different to relatedness, which encompasses two sides? One is the belonging and the other is, am I contributing to other people? As in, do I matter to you, for instance, to listeners, to whoever I'm working with? So for me, the benevolence that he was talking about, for me, is already encompassed in the relatedness research. And I wonder if we need, is he wanting to separate it so that we make more of a thing of it and we, we highlight it more um, or not? I don't know. It's an interesting one. It is because they, it's very, it seems very a fine line between what the difference. Hmm. I agree. And I think re relatedness is the way it's uh, covered in the research now is do I feel connected to you? Do I feel included uh, by you, our team, whatever you? Um, and or do I make a difference? Does my presence when I show up make a difference? Am I adding value? Am I contributing? 
benevolence is more maybe going to move into the kindness space. And I don't know if that's a basic psychological need in the same way of mattering. Like everybody needs to matter. If you think about uh, whether you're eight or you're 80, you want to feel you matter, that you're making a difference, that you're contributing to somebody else's life, that you're of value. Whereas do, is it a basic psychological? I think benevolence and kindness is important, but is it a basic psychological need in the same way that that contribution mattering feeling needed um, is? I don't know. Yeah, and I'm not sure now, and I can feel my neurons firing, is I don't know if it is a basic need because to me, if you've got the relatedness, what's going to come from that is the benevolence. If I feel connected and I feel I'm making a difference, I feel included, et cetera, I am naturally going to be kind. That's just how I, I think that's. Yeah, and you might be right, because that then links to Barbara Fredrickson's broaden and build theory exactly. that we know that if I'm feeling more positive emotions, I'm going to be kinder, more altruistic, collaborative. So, yeah, you're probably right. Exactly. That That's, again, so that's your point. Whether it's another basic need, I think it will come that, as I said, and I, I wasn't going to mention broaden and build, because I always mention broaden and build, but that's exactly what was in my head. That's, it's, yeah. it's the ripple. It's then, yeah, it just comes from that, as opposed to it being another um we need to include this so yeah interesting well we'll see how that plays out I guess yeah, so I was gonna say maybe we should let Richard Ryan know that Tanya and Sue say no you don't need to <laughs> well do we need another thing as you say do we need yet another thing I don't know again it's we kind of touched on this last time around all the different models that people are bringing out and kind of which is in some ways I, I guess good it's you know different people looking at different things and how might we be able to make it more practical or what have you but I'm like well is this not the same thing is this not the same yeah outcome? I don't I don't and know actually yeah so talking about that one thing that I think is really interesting um is uh that leads me to um Richard Davidson's presentation so I don't know if you remember Richard Davidson's presentation, but you took a photo of this and it was the four pillars of a healthy mind. Awareness, be present, connection, feel connected, insight, get curious, purpose, stay motivated. And you and I both at this point, as fabulous as Richard Davidson is, he's done some brilliant research, but we both rolled our eyes and went, oh, good, another model. <laughs> so I think to your point is... I really like the basic psychological needs because it tells us what's really important to people anywhere in the world. Um, we can do something with it. Um, whilst Richard Davidson's four pillars of a healthy mind were perfectly relevant, um, be present, feel connected, get curious, stay motivated. And they fit with the research around things like mindfulness and attention, kindness and compassion, uh, self-knowledge, self-transcendence, and then um, that sort of purpose and meaning, which we know is important. It was a bit like, Oh, good. Another model. Why is one model better than another? Do we need this many models? Um, so that was the thing I didn't like so much about Richard Davidson's um, uh, presentation, because I did find, as I say, we both kind of rolled our eyes at that one. But um, Richard Davidson did have some interesting points. So I don't know, was there anything else that resonated with you about what he had to say? Um. No, I've, I mean, my notes, when I look at them, it is, it's is—it's what you basically said. And again, as you said, with his model, you can all, it resonates. You kind of think, yeah, of course, there's nothing new, let's say. And I don't mean that in a, in a rude way. It's just another model of doing the same thing, as I say. Um, and again, a couple of things that I kind of made a note of, again, with, with, with the awareness, he was saying, you know, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind, um, which I kind of... Get, or he said there was a paper on that, which I was going to actually Google to see if I could find it. I don't know if you Yeah, know. actually, no, I'm glad you brought that up because they did a, a study where they asked people, they pinged people every so often and they asked them sort of rate how they were doing from a wellbeing perspective and what they were focused on. But I think that's a really interesting one to your point. An unhappy mind is a wandering mind. I remember him saying that. I don't know if that's necessarily strictly true, depending on your outcome, because we know from innovation, a wandering mind can actually be really helpful. Because when I allow my mind to wander and I gaze up at the clouds and I allow my mind to go wherever it wants to go, I may well come up with things I've never come up with before. 
So I think it may be depend to your point on how you're measuring it. They were specifically measuring people, whether they were meditating or whether they were doing something else and how focused they were on that moment. And what they found was, let's imagine I'm meant to be focusing on doing a presentation, but my mind is wandering off and doing my emails. Then I was less happy than if I was focused. But I'm not entirely sure that we oh well we need to consider the parameters of that because sometimes when your mind wanders you can come up with amazing insights yeah absolutely absolutely but yeah the other thing go on sorry yeah well there was a couple of other things on here and i don't know if you remember this he showed some statistics around uh depression for instance depressive symptoms between 2014 and 2021 and what was interesting it had gone up and then it plateaued and yet we constantly keep being told by the media that depression has increased but actually it's gone it's now started to drop down since about 2019 uh, loneliness is a consistent line creeping up so that has gone up a little bit not as much as people think but what was really interesting that he showed was the line of loneliness if you imagine a 30 degree angle maybe was the average trajectory of loneliness and screen time was about a 40 degree angle now he didn't say there was a correlation between the two but there was an interesting um, statistic that our screen time has increased more than our loneliness has increased so that's one of the things that came up from if you remember the bolstering, buffering, building, well-being, it said one of the protective factors was people who spent less time on social media getting their news. This is actually indicating that as screen time is going up, our loneliness is increasing. So what's that telling us about society, et cetera? Mm. And I guess maybe that would make sense um, with respect to not being able to see people. You're going to be more, you're going to be on your technology more. But again, as you say, we can kind of, who poo social media, et cetera. But again, it's whether when it's good, if you if you use it in the correct way. Um, and again, one thing actually on what one of my learnings, if you like, or takeaways from the conference of having spoken to you is now I've got a timer on my social media. So I only give myself 15 minutes. Um, it's quite interesting. Of course, you can say ignore for 15 minutes or ignore for the day and what have you, but it is a good reminder that actually. I've had my 15 minutes of scrolling. So what is important to me that I'm going to check LinkedIn first before Facebook or what have you. So again, it, and it's working for me. So I think it's yeah. I'll wait till tomorrow. I don't need to look at Instagram again or what have you. So again, it's, yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah. And I think to your point, and yes, I did talk about this in my, um, in my keynote was um, technology isn't the problem. It's user error. As in when we use it wisely and effectively, um, and I won't use the term correctly because who's to say what the correct way is, but effectively for our lifestyle or is it using us? So I think that's interesting again around he gave statistics of increased screen time and increased loneliness is almost a similar trajectory. And yet it may depend absolutely on how we're using it um because I agree with you I I like to use my screen time wisely and I have my 15 minute cutoff and occasionally you know if I'm sitting in an airport for three hours maybe I override it <laughs> but um um yeah interesting yeah okay so the other person that we haven't yet touched on was Mike Steger so he was one of the keynotes uh on day two I think um so what were your thoughts? Because I know both you and I love Mike as far as a person and whatever you and he's just lovely. So any thoughts on uh, anything Mike had to say? Well, when I, now, <laughs> whenever I think about Mike Siegel, I always then think about the kind of the, the fun we had at the, at the Sky Lagoon, which wasn't. Go on, tell everybody about what he did at the end, because Tanya's now got this in her head now. So Mike was at the Sky Lagoon. We talked to you about that in a previous session. But there was something he did at the end that now Tanya can't get out of her head. Now it's going to be in everyone else's mind. I'm sorry, Mike, if you're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> what it was, so when we were going to the Sky Lagoon, a couple of people had said to us, um, well, just, you know, check that this Sky Lagoon, you don't have to, it's not nude. Um, unless you want to go where it's nude and I said to Sue well obviously we had a discussion around this obviously about well gosh if it's nude there's no way we're going all the rest of it um anyway you can imagine where our minds wander too but it was so funny because obviously when we got there and it wasn't nude you in your, your swimming costumes um and we kind of had this conversation with Mike and basically obviously because the water's up to your chest level I guess you're kind of you know your, your chest level um 
my actually said, well, I am naked. And I was like a gas. And I obviously, I kind of would have known he was joking. He said, I am naked. But then he immediately did this kind of dive into the, he brought in the water, but did this dive. So his bottom kind of came out of the water. So there's this kind of like initial shock of like, oh no, has he not? <laughs> but of course he did, which was, but it was just so funny because he is such a joker. He's so lovely. Um, but yeah, that's sorry. That is my. That is always going to be in my. Head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a panic of are you going to get a real bottom come up? <laughs> it was very. Well, you had I to. But um, but in terms of his talk, no, it was it was really good and it was very um. I want to say thoughtful, actually, very mindful, just how he presents himself on stage and what have you. One of the, one of the things that I do remember, and again. I've got a, a photo of it is one of his um slides just had a lot of information again with a few of the speakers there was it, there was too much detail um and partly you couldn't really read all of it and we were fairly near the front to be fair um but just a lot of information but again around meaning so again it was um you know interesting but it was yeah I don't know what were your thoughts yeah, well, one of the things that I did like, so um, Mike, again, is very good at sort of keeping really up with the research and keeping things sort of modern and fresh. So he doesn't quote things from 20 years ago. He literally quoted all of his studies, I think, were in the last three, four years. Um, and he quoted some really good examples of, uh, again, linking to this kindness, benevolence, etc. Um, one study around helping others linked to increases in meaningful work, um, helping people and animals leading to high meaningful work, uh, bank employees with greater meaningful work reported more altruism. So he was looking at specific studies that did both ways, if you like, as in, if I have more meaningful work, do I do more altruism? Or if I do more altruism, do I get more meaningful work? So I thought that was a, a just an interesting sort of, um, again, summary or example. And he gave a whole range of different things to do with organisations that practised um, meaningful work, sustainability, social missions, significance in tasks, et cetera, which links me to work I've been doing lately with clients around job crafting, increasing meaning, increasing significance. And I know the slide that you mentioned about having so much on it, and I took a photo of it. And um, I'm hoping Mike's going to share some more studies around this because he talked about meaning in life concepts and then meaningful work concepts and then the crossover where there were shared themes. And maybe this is something we could dig into in another session, because I think there was so much information there that I wasn't quite sure how to sort of make sense of it. But some of the shared themes were things like self-knowledge, authenticity, action, so effective action, self-transcendence, connection, wisdom, ethics, and overall purpose. But what he did is he sort of looked at the connection between meaning in life, which is about coherence, purpose, significance, mattering, some of the things that we often speak about in meaning, and then meaningful work, which is about positive meaning, meaning making, doing something for the greater good, if you like, serving, helping others, those sorts of things. So I think there's probably more that we could explore on that because it was a very complex slide. Mm -hmm. um, but to your point, I there was a seriousness to what he was talking about. Um, and I appreciate I struggled to relate to um, Mike was talking about a lot of people having existential crises. And, you know, Tanya, I always have a problem with that word existential of what does it actually mean? Um, and, and even when I then looked it up again for the 50 millionth time that I've looked it up in my life, I was like, wow, I'm not having an existential crisis. Um, so I think for me, I wasn't that didn't resonate with me because I'm not feeling lost and I'm not feeling like where is my life is going, but apparently many people are and they're rethinking. So maybe we can dig more into some of that themes around meaning in life, meaningful work in another session of what does it mean to us? What does it mean to people out there? Are they rethinking their work lives? I don't know. I don't know what your experience is with people you're talking to right now. Yeah, I think it would be good to discuss this more. Maybe we get Mike on another um, in conversation, like, well, I'm assuming conversation, because again, funny enough, this kind of came up with a couple of friends that I was with yesterday around meaning and purpose in our work. And um, and I'll give you an example. My friend, she said, all right, you know, now I've got to get on with my chores. And again, for me, I'm just so aware of, again, the language we use around chores. So already it feels like hard work. 
Um, yeah. but, you know, I brought in the example, well, if you don't want to, you, you, I guess you do want to clean your house because you want a nice, you don't have to clean your house, but do you want to clean it? So again, it is all um, linked. But again, my conversation with my friends yesterday was actually really good because it kind of covered so many things and again, broaden and build and what have you. So I think, um, but I, I brought in the meaning side because again, my friend's partner was doing the gardening and what have you and he again it was like well if there's meaning to it again for it to look pretty or for you to enjoy it and what have you and there's a purpose to it so again it is um whether we're missing it or again we're not intentionally I don't know thinking about it the awareness that actually I can make this meaningful I can make this what it what is well again now I'm going to go back to being mindful um yeah so coming to your point there, um, we talk about this on the Diploma of Positive Psychology and Wellbeing. We talk about it on our positive leadership programs. We And we link to Mike Seeger's work all the time mm. around meaning making. Mm. So to your point is it's, are we, are we, whoever these people are, is are people having an existential crisis because they're waiting for meaning to be given to them? Yeah. Or do they have the tools in their toolkit to make meaning? Because that's what we talk about all the time is this is a, a tool. It's a strategy we can use to make meaning and to shift our language. So I don't know, I think that's one perhaps for a deeper conversation, but I know we're running out of time. So we, we waffle on for so long. The other thing I thought would be nice just to finish off is you and I both had comments about the, uh, the setting, the ambience and the Harper building is just brilliant. But there was a really interesting dynamic, wasn't there about being inside at the conference versus being outside in Iceland in June. Yes. Um, and as you say, it was, it was a fantastic venue. And I think because it was specifically in Iceland, this is where it really struck me because you're inside in not darkness, obviously, but, you know, in kind of darkness and the stage, what have you. But then as soon as you would leave and you so obviously you'd open the doors and leave, you would be kind of hit by this light because it is so, but when summer, it is, there is so much light in Iceland. And I kind of started just thinking again, even going to bed when it's still, you know, all again from the Sky Lagoon, we got home at midnight, as you said, um, and it was still like, well, it was light. Um, mm. The impact it would have and had on us actually, I mean, it, I guess you, you know, you adapt if you, you obviously would adapt if you're living there, but the impact on your brain and what that would do to your circadian rhythm and what have you, I don't know, just the, the, the it being so stark, the difference was just really quite amazing because the lightness outside didn't change. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and I think that was lovely. And for anybody who's sort of been to some of those sort of northern regions or lives in that, or southern regions potentially as well, um, but obviously we experienced pretty much 24-hour daylight. So even though they said the sun did set at 11.45, you certainly didn't really notice. Uh, if you were awake at 1 a.m., it was just as light as 1 p.m., um so I think that was interesting but to your point is you're absolutely right the Harper is a beautiful building but because it was so dark inside and it also had blue light if you remember the lights on the sides had sort of a bluish light it was almost a real shock to the system because there was no windows so you couldn't tell so it didn't matter whether you walked out of a session at 10 o'clock in the morning or whether you walked out of a session that finished up at seven o'clock in the evening it was the same light that then hit you in the same darkness so I know on a couple of occasions, um, I did feel quite lethargic indoors, um, in the darkness, no windows, no external light, the blue light, et cetera, kind of made me feel a bit mentally sleepy. Mm. Um, and then of course I'd walk outside and it would be back to broad daylight again. So I don't know, I'd be interested to know. I mean, I know a little bit about, I've read a little bit about circadian rhythms and things like that. And obviously I've read a little bit about how when you get 24 hours of darkness, it impacts. Um, but yeah, I'd be intrigued to know what it does when you're in a closed off room with no windows and then outside is 24 hour daylight. It was, it was a really interesting impact on us that we noticed. Yeah. And to your point about being in the room, we're also sitting down. So again, that didn't help. I was very conscious over that week, actually. That was the most sitting down I've done in a very long time, um, which again, wouldn't help. So from a physiological perspective, but also a mental, as well as the mm. darkness, it's almost like, well, again, you your brain's probably telling you to kind of crawl up and go to sleep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the reality of, um, yeah, it hitting you as soon as you get up. It, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. But yeah, I like to maybe talk 
interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It is interesting. So as we bring our third conversation around the conference to a close, if you had to describe your your experience of the conference in three words, what would it be? Oh, in three words. Um, oh, that's a tough one, Sue. <laughs> of course. My experience. Um, I'm going to use, okay, connectedness, I'd say. Um, is it? I was yeah. actually, I'd say, <laughs> um, I want to say love, but that isn't the word I mean. Oh, you know what I'm like when I try. No, that's that. the second one on mine. <laughs> no way. That's ridiculous. Um, okay, connectedness, love. And I want to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, make this one up but I'm going to say that it's one word hashtag making a difference and <laughs> I don't know that is through us but it's what was so lovely is that actually I felt really invigorated and re-energized not that I wasn't before but this whole actually this we're now really making a difference we there with this and again at the end it was about how can we all as um different teams but different countries actually be having different events now where we really want to be creating the world world to live in so that was really as i say the connectedness the loves the hashtag making a difference that's what, that's what i'm gonna go with what was, what was your third one well i i think that's lovely and for everybody listening i will say i had not prepared this question oh. i'm not Tanya on this one and i wrote down connection love and to your point i'm not i wasn't sure love was the right word and yet it felt like that um my other one my third one is actually very similar to yours but it was about future and i kept thinking the future is human as in we have the opportunity to make a bigger difference in the world um so i came away not necessarily inspired by a particular speaker um, I was inspired by the fact that there's so much going on. Um, yeah. And I know my speech was the future is human because I really wanted to get across that um, belief that we can make a bigger difference in the world. So to your point, obviously, one of my values as well as yours is making a difference. So that's definitely what I came away with is we as a whole community people um the people that we work with the people that we connect with every day every single one of our listeners we can make a difference out there in the world the future does depend on us if we want to make it what we want to make it absolutely i love that brilliant so good we are just so in tune <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody who have been eavesdropping on Tanya and I's third conversation on the European Positive Psychology Conference in Iceland. There was a lot to talk about. And maybe we'll do another one on my presentation at some point, because uh, I still haven't talked about that with our Lomasu members either. So thank you, everybody, for listening to another one of our Lomasu Walk and Talk podcasts. I hope you've enjoyed today's ruminations and reflections. And if you would like more or you would like to join our Lomasu member forum where you can join live sessions with uh, myself, with other experts. You can um, have a look at some of our virtual courses, research reviews, and lots, lots more. Then please uh, jump to learnwithsu.com.au and consider joining us as a member. Thanks, Tanya, again for an awesome conversation. I'm going to be off to bed for cheer soon, and you have a fabulous day. Thanks so much, Sue. Thanks, everyone.